Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, brought to you by Fem Health Insights the leaders in women's health, market research, and consulting. In this show, we have meaningful and provocative conversations with fem health experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. And before we get going, I want to tell you about our upcoming summit. On Wednesday, June 28th, we are hosting a virtual summit to celebrate the 30-year anniversary of the Revitalization Act, which allowed females of reproductive age to participate in clinical trials. Did you know that females weren't involved in clinical trials from 1977 till 1993? And that's because of a drug called thalidomide, and we'll get into that at the summit. But We are going to be celebrating all the successes we have made in the last 30 years towards women's health and what we can do in the next 30. So the speakers and content throughout the day will present and engage the audience in discussion on the role of government in healthcare, specifically women's healthcare. Tickets are on sale now for only $30. We want to make the summit super accessible to everyone. So again, that's Wednesday, June 28th. Full day, one day virtual summit from 11 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern. And you can go get your tickets now at femtechfocus.com. Register today. Okay, fem fans, you may have noticed today's a little different. First, I'm actually live streaming this right now on Instagram. So if you're watching, hi, drop me a comment. Good to see you. Um, And then second, we're also doing a different format. So instead of having a guest, I, your host, will be providing you with a deep dive into um, a specific topic. And so today's topic is mifepristone the abortion pill that is at risk of being removed from the U.S. market. So I have this incredible, incredible um, apprentice, uh, Apoorva. She's amazing. And she helped me do a bunch of research the last two weeks on mifepristone. And so today I'm going to be going through that those notes and the research project that I did with her in order for us to figure out um, you know, a story to tell our followers about what is mifepristone, how does it work, what is the history of mifepristone, um, and then what what's at risk and what, you know, what's the jeopardy for women's health. So let's jump right in. Again, please, uh, this is really fun because I'm watching people commenting while recording and I know people will be listening to this in their everyday lives. So it's so fun. All right, so let's get going. Um, Just under 1 million people utilized abortion services in the United States in 2020. A million people in 2020 got an abortion. Wow, in the United States. 90% of abortion patients in the U.S. obtained their procedure in the first trimester. So that's super common, right? 90% in the first trimester. So that's the first three months out of nine. Um, A lot of people... On the other side of things, Republicans are saying that, you know, abortion happens when the baby's born, and that's just not the case. So 90% first trimester. 
The Supreme Court overturned the constitutional right to abortion uh, via Roe v. Wade in 20 of 2022. So uh, June 2022. So last summer in June. And now instead of at a federal level where we have the right to have the right to abortion, now each state can decide whether or not. And since the Supreme Court Dobbs ruling, so it's called the Dobbs decision because Dobbs was similar to Roe v. Wade. Dobbs is one of those names. So it's the Dobbs decision. The Dobbs ruling on June 24, 2022, four new cases, four, have been filed in federal courts specifically regarding aspects of the FDA's regulation of medication abortion. So we know we have medication abortion and surgical abortion. So medication abortion is what we're going to learn all about today. I've learned so much. You're going to learn now, too. Um about medication abortion, and then the other kind is surgical. So that's when you go under um, anesthesia and or local anesthetic. I'm not actually quite sure. I'm not that kind of doctor, but it's uh, it's a quite, it's kind of like a surgery with the vacuum. Um, but that happens usually in different situations, and it's actually the um, less than half of abortions are that kind. More than half of abortions are the medication kind. Some states have banned abortion or created a lot of restrictions already since last June, but abortion is still legal in many states, and it is is legal to go to a different state to get an abortion uh, because abortion is not banned nationwide. It's state by state. Um, I actually looked at Planned Parenthood's website at, you know, state by state is, you know, is it banned? Is it not banned? And I found some really interesting stuff. So here, listen to this. 12 states in, oh, by the way, this is, uh, today is April 24th, uh, 7 p.m. Eastern. So these things are literally changing every single day. So I needed to say that today's Monday, April 24th, 7 p.m. Eastern. 12 states completely abandon abortion. 12 completely abandon it. 32 states ban abortion after a specific time point in pregnancy. 15 states require a person seeking an abortion to wait a specific period of time before their abortion. 24 states require some type of parental involvement for a minor getting an abortion. Some other really interesting things I found was states like Wyoming, um, their rules actually up to viability. Um, so some usually sometime between 24 to 26 weeks, a, a law completely banning it was actually blocked. So a state that has technically no time limit up through viability, um, which is, you know, at least eight months, if not nine, um, uh, they also tried to pass a law to completely ban it and it was blocked by the voters. So that's really interesting. Uh, Colorado. All right. All of these states have no limit on when you can have an abortion. I was actually really surprised by this. I figured every state had a limit, a little limit about when you can have it. But these are all states that actually have no limit on when you can have an abortion. Colorado, New Jersey, New Mexico, Oregon, Vermont, Washington, D.C., and Alaska. I was really surprised about Alaska. So, wow. Um, Telehealth in states. So, you cannot do telehealth in a state that bans abortion and get prescribed from a doctor that's in a non-banned state. For example, if a patient living in Missouri where uh, where abortion is banned 
could not have an abortion medication prescribed during a telehealth consultation while she was in her home state. But listen to this. But if the telehealth visit occurred while she was working for her employer in an office in Illinois, the medication was mailed there, then that would be permitted. So that's an interesting loophole there. Um, so how does this drug work biologically? Let's dive. That's just a little bit about medication abortions and state laws. So I want to dive into now um, my first real question here, which is how does mifepristone work on a biological level? Obviously, I'm a scientist and I love this so much. I thought it was so fun to dive into this. All right. So the commercial name for mifepristone is Mifprex. M-I-F-E-P-R-I-X, Mifprex, uh, and its generic name if, is Mifepristone tablets. <laughs> um, so we're just going to call them Mifepristone. They are approved in a regiment with mif- misoprostol. misoprostol. So you have Mifepristone and misoprostol. Um, and you take both of these drugs to end a intrauterine pregnancy. So the reason we say intrauterine is because sometimes the egg can get fertilized and get stuck or implanted into the fallopian tube, which is not something you can have a medication abortion to get rid of. So it has to be implanted in the uterus in order for you to be able to do these mifepristone, misoprostol treatment regimens. Um, and so... And you can take this combination through 10 weeks gestation. That is 70 days or less since the first day of the patient's last period. Uh, the FDA first approved Mifeprex, that Mifepristone, in 2000, so 23 years ago. In 2000, it was approved. Um, and the generic version, Mifeprex and Mifepristone tablets were approved in 2019. So actually kind of recently for the generics. Mifepristone, okay, here, let's drive into it. Mifepristone is absorbed rapidly after oral administration. So I heard that you have to put two, four pills in your mouth, two in each cheek, and you have to keep them in there until they fully dissolve. And I heard that it tastes terrible but of course something that like helps women probably has like no consumer studies on like how was the experience so um but that's what i've heard um and then let's see it reaches its maximum serum level so blood levels within two hours of taking it and has a half-life of about 25 hours so that's cool out of your system within two days uh, mifepristone blocks the activity of progesterone receptors. So progesterone is pro-gestation. So it's pro-pregnancy. You take progesterone to be pregnant, um, or you can take it to not be pregnant And <laughs> because a lot of birth controls are progesterone, which essentially is telling your body, oh, like I'm pregnant. Don't I don't need to release an egg. I have lots of progesterone and I must be pregnant. And so um, uh, something that blocks a progesterone receptor is going to block the way that this progesterone hormone works. Let's keep going. So this prevents progesterone from regulating the menstrual cycle and it and thickens the lining of the uterus to create a hospitable environment for the fertilized egg to implant and grow. So again, progesterone is there to grow that inner lining, making it nice and bloody and juicy and warm for this fertilized egg. And mifepristone blocks progesterone from, from building that beautiful little nest, that internal nest. 
Um, where, where, what is progesterone and where does it come from? Progesterone is released around the 14th day of the menstrual cycle. Again, the menstrual cycle is not just your period. Your period is a phase within the cycle. Uh, so the 14th day of the menstrual cycle by the corpus luteum, this was so fascinating corpus luteum in the ovary. So the corpus luteum is this small organoid that actually is the follicle, um, that will mature and end up becoming your egg. Egg. And so it's almost, it looks to me like when I was looking at diagrams online, it's like, um, it's like the egg of shell part of the egg, right? When you crack your egg and it's in the pan, let's pretend you're cracking the egg, but it actually goes into the fallopian tube <laughs> that rem remnants, the egg shell. That's kind of what it looked like to me in the ovary. That is actually what releases the progesterone, which makes a total, a lot of sense. If you think of the sequence of events, just release the egg into the fallopian tube. Hopefully it's going to get fertilized by sperm. And you, what you would want to have next is that it gets implanted into this really thick, juicy, healthy uterine wall. And if you don't have progesterone, you won't have that. So that body that just ejected the egg out is now releasing that in its final uh, days. It like only lives for a little while. So corpus luteum, which literally translates as yellow body due to its appearance. Okay, whatever. Uh, this releases progesterone. Um, what does progesterone do? Progesterone prepares the body for pregnancy in the event that the released egg is fertilized. Like I said, if the egg is not fertilized, the corpus luteum breaks down. So it only has a few more days left to do its job and release that progesterone. And after it degrades, the production of progesterone falls and a new menstrual cycle begins. So, um, okay, listen to this. If the egg is fertilized, though, the progesterone stimulates the growth of blood vessels that supply the lining of the womb, the endometrium, and stimulates glands in the endometrium to secrete nutrients that nourish the early embryo. Progesterone then prepares the tissue lining of the uterus to allow the fertilized egg to implant and helps to maintain the endometrium throughout pregnancy. Awesome. During the early stages of pregnancy, progesterone is still produced by the corpus luteum. Uh, and is essential for supporting pregnancy and establishing the placenta. Listen to this. I learned this in the research. I didn't know this. Once the placenta is established, it then takes over the progesterone production at around weeks 8 to 12 of pregnancy. It's called the luteal, luteal placental shift, luteal placental shift where the progesterone is no longer being made by that end product from the egg being popped out from the follicle in the ovary. Instead, it's now being produced by the placenta. This is crazy. And so if you never actually have that fertilized egg, you'll never get that placenta until you'll never have your um, progesterone maintaining its highness. Um, this is crazy. Thank you. Uh, we got comments coming in on Instagram, people being like, what the what? I know I'm learning a lot. This is so fun. All right, let's keep going. <laughs> um, during pregnancy, progesterone plays an important role in the development of the fetus. It stimulates the growth of the ma maternal breast tissue. It prevents lactation, uh, like during pregnancy, wait for the baby to get there. It strengthens the pelvic wall muscles in preparation for labor. The level of progesterone in the body steadily rises throughout pregnancy until labor occurs and the baby is born. Although the corpus luteum in the ovaries is a major site of progesterone production in humans, progesterone is also produced in small quantities by the ovaries themselves, the adrenal glands, and during pregnancy, the placenta. Wow. 
I learned so much about progesterone. I don't even know. I love it. So how is progesterone controlled now that we know what it does? The formation of the corpus luteum, which produces the majority of progesterone, is triggered by a surge in lute. <laughs> I'm so sorry, y'all. Let's try it again. Luteinizing hormone or LH, luteinizing hormone, LH, production by the anterior pituitary gland. This normally occurs at approximately day 14 of the menstrual cycle, and it stimulates the release of an egg from the ovary or ovulation, the formation of the corpus luteum from the remnant of the follicle, like I told you. The corpus luteum then secretes progesterone, which prepares the body for pregnancy. I think we pretty much have covered this, actually. Um, as the lining of the womb is no longer maintained by progesterone, from the corpus luteum, it breaks away and menstrual bleeding occurs, making the start of the new menstrual cycle. So mifepristone blocks progesterone that is helping maintain the endometrial lining, which causes it to slough off into a period. The cervix is also softened. Interesting. Interesting. Let's get into that. All right. So mifepristone is prescribed along with misoprostol. Um, I don't know why the, the way that I remember misoprostol is I say, um, oh, I, I can't even remember it. It doesn't matter. Let's keep going. So, uh, let's learn a little bit about how that drug works because the way that mifopristone is prescribed, it's always in combination with misoprostol. And you are going to start to hear a lot about this new drug or the second drug, misoprostol, not new. It's very much established. But that is actually going to be the alternative if mifopristone is taken off the market. It's that you could still do medication abortions with just misoprostol. So I wanted to talk about that drug too, even though that's not the one at risk of being banned. So let's talk about it. All right. The FDA approved misoprostol, that's the second one, um, in 1988 for the prevention of gastric ulcers in your stomach associated with the use of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as, I think, Advil, or is it Tylenol? I always forget. I think it's Advil. <laughs> Somebody in my Instagram uh, comments tell me, is it, which one is the anti-steroidal drug? Um, anyways, misoprostol is also used for cervical ripening as a prelude to induction of labor and as the second component to the early abortion uh, medication abortion using misoprost uh, mifepristone. Excuse me, it's such a mouthful. And so one thing I just really quite quickly want to say, cervical ripening, um, your cervix, I like to think of your uterus as a balloon and the cervix is the knot on the bottom of the balloon, essentially keeping all the air up inside and keeping, you know, things from going in. Uh, the difference is that the cervix can open and, and it's not like the uterus is actually filled with air and is going to like deflate, but, um, that's how your period comes out or the sperm can go in. And so if you want a baby to come out or have an abortion or a miscarriage, you want that cervix to start to ripen. The material of the cervix is very similar to the cartilage of the ear. So you can imagine you'd like that to kind of be softer and not so thick if you're trying to make it open. Um, what is the mechanism of action of misoprostol? Misoprostol is a, oh, this is, this is good stuff. Is a um, prostaglidin. So a prostaglidin 
analog, and it binds to the prostaglandin receptors that can be found in the myometrial cells or smooth muscle cells found in the stomach. So gastric ulcers, they're, they're prescribing this for ulcers in your stomach. So the, sm- the smooth muscles there, but then also the smooth muscles in your uterine lining and cervix. The stimulation of um, prostaglandin receptors in the stomach reduces gastric acid secretion, which is why it's prescribed for the prevention or treatment of stomach ulcers. These receptors are also found in the smooth muscle cells of the uterus and cervix. Specifically, these cells are located in the myometrium, myometrium between the endometrium and the seroteum. Serosa. I learned so many words researching this. Obviously, I still need to practice saying them, but by um and the serosa. So the serosa is the outer lining of the uterus. The endometrium is the inner lining. That's the stuff that like schlafs off when you have your period. And so what we're talking about is that muscle that's in between that, the myometrium. So myometrium cells are involved in the stretching of the uterus during pregnancy and also responsible for uterine contractions during labor. So you catching on, you're like gastric, gastric ulcers, like contractions, it's all going to come together, I promise. Myometrial contractions are the result of an increase in myometrial activation. Typical labor includes the activation of three receptors. So there's these three receptors that are on these smooth muscle cells that when activated will start to move in certain ways that leads to these contractions. So the three receptors are oxytocin receptors. So oxytocin is actually a labor-inducing hormone. I didn't know that. Um, a connection connexin receptor and the prostaglandin receptor. And so remember, misoprostol activates the prostaglandin receptor, which is what leads to the contractions and the softening of the cervix. Um, And therefore, the release of the endometrial tissue can then occur. Misoprostol alone is less effective. This is very important because if we get rid of um, mifepristone, the, the progesterone blocker, that doesn't allow your endometrial lining to stay thick and healthy and juicy and you know warm and cozy for that fertilized egg. If we just stick with the mesoprostol, which is this contraction, you know, smooth muscle activator, it's less effective. And typically only works 88% of the time, only up to eight weeks of gestation. So we're looking at only eight weeks. Most w- women don't know they're pregnant within eight weeks. Um, and it's only effective 88% of the time. And if it's not effective, then it's only like, it's essentially like a miscarriage without it being even completed. And um, usually those women will have to go in back into whatever system, you know, that they may or may not be located by, because that's why they got potentially why they got a medical medication abortion in the first place. They have to go into a healthcare system and have a surgical abortion to finish it. And you can imagine the, um, I mean, just literally right then and there, like what I just said has 10 barriers to access for healthcare. So, um, and then if the consequences of her not going could be infection, could be infertility, could be all these terrible things. So it's important for us to know that yes, medication abortions can still occur, occur even if you're only using misoprostol, not with combination of mifepristone, but it's only effective up to 88% of the time, up to eight weeks gestation. All right. 
It's not inherently unsafe, but 1% of women will have heavy bleeding that actually requires medical attention again. So it's not like the best on its own. Here's the good news. It's not dangerous to your health to take mifepristone and misoprostol or misoprostol on its own. If you aren't pregnant, that was some question I had was like, um, can you take this not pregnant? Like based on how the potential lawsuit right now is that it says it's so dangerous. Okay. Well, let's keep reading. Um, it doesn't have a negative impact on your future pregnancies or your future fertility. Neither does using the abortion pills when you're pregnant, by the way. In addition to being used to terminate pregnancy, misoprostol treats and prevents stomach ulcers. So it's given to people who aren't pregnant all the time. And so I personally wonder if um, mifepristone was used as often for something else. Maybe, maybe it would have a harder time being banned, quote unquote, banned so easily. But we'll see. All right. What's it like having a medication abortion? I thought maybe we should um, just just hear about this for a second so we understand, you know, from the science, but then also emotional side. I want to get don't I, I hate always just um, if you get too scientific for too long, sometimes you lose the emotion. So I want to bring the emotion back to what are we really talking about? We're talking about human lives. Um so this is honestly a lot of quotes I just pulled from Planned Parenthood because I really trust them as an amazing resource. So what do, what do they have to say about what a medication abortion is like? You'll have a lot of bleeding and cramping after you take the second medicine. So the first medicine is the mifepristone, which blocks the progesterone, starts to release the endometrial lining. And then a few hours later, you take the misoprostol. Within 24 hours, actually, you take the misoprostol. And then um, that's actually what starts the contractions and helps push out all of that uh, endometrial lining that just was released. Um So it says, so go ahead and plan to make a, um, the process more comfortable. So you should be at home or wherever is comfortable for you to rest. You may also want to have someone with you that you trust or someone nearby that you can call for support if you need anything. Stock up on maxi pads, food, books, movies, whatever you like to help pass the time and heating pads for cramps. Make sure you have some pain medicine and don't take aspirin because it can make you bleed more. I think aspirin is the drug that... um Never mind. Doesn't matter. We're past that. <laughs> uh, the abortion pill process has several steps and includes two different medications. First, you take a pill called mifepristone. The second medicine is called misoprostol, of which you are all experts now. You know all about them. You'll either take the misoprostol right away or up to 48 hours. Oh, I said 24. It's up to 48 hours after you take the first pill. So again, that second pill, the contraction pill, really relies on that uh, blockage of the progesterone to work really, really effectively because they're telling you to even you can wait up to 24, 48 hours after you take the first pill to take the second pill. Your doctor or nurse will let you know how and when to take it. This medicine causes cramping and bleeding to empty your uterus, and we are all more knowledgeable now about exactly how it does that. For most people, the cramping and bleeding usually starts within one to four hours after taking the misoprostol. It's normal to see large blood clots up to the size of a lemon, y'all. A lemon. Can you, like, thank God there's websites like this telling us that's normal. If I somehow pushed a lemon-sized blood clot out of my vagina, I'd be really concerned that that wasn't normal. So, um, 
First of all, if anyone thinks women are just taking medication abortion on the weekend so we can have unsafe sex, you are so wrong. Um, and like, this is kind of, this is crazy. All right. Or clumps of tissue when this is happening. It's kind of like having a really heavy, crampy period. And the process is very similar to an early miscarriage. Um, if you don't have any bleeding within 24 hours after taking the second medicine, misoprostol, call your nurse or doctor. The cramping and bleeding can last for several hours. Most people finish passing, passing the pregnancy tissue in four to five hours, but it may take longer. The cramping and bleeding slows down after the pregnancy tissue comes out. You may have cramping on and off for one or two more days. You can take pain medicine like ibuprofen about uh, 30 minutes before you take the second medicine, misoprostol, to help with cramps. You can also take anti-nausea medicine for your... Uh, because I, I've heard that a lot in a lot of the reviews that women were super nauseous on mifepristone. So that's interesting. Uh, it's normal to have some bleeding and spotting for several weeks after your abortion. You can use pads, tampons, or a menstrual cup, whatever's the most comfortable for you. Um, but your nurse or doctor may recommend you use pads for the first few days after the abortion so you can track how much you're bleeding. That's a good suggestion. The last step is to follow up with your nurse or doctor. You may go back to the health center for an ultrasound or a blood test, or you'll get a pregnancy test at home, followed by a phone call with your nurse or doctor. The test will make sure that the abortion worked and that you're healthy. So that follow-up is actually really important to make sure that the whole process did um, did was successful and that the woman doesn't have any remnants left in her uterine cavity. So let's talk about the approval process of mifepristone, because what I'm trying to do today is arm you with facts so that you can go into the world. And when people say women's health, uh, you know, like, you know, there's all these bad drugs on the market. I don't know what these people say. <laughs> I know really, I try not to listen to them too much. I want you to be able to have a really smart dialogue with anyone you want um, and about this stuff, because I think that just makes us more empowered when we know. So that's why I'm going through this. When was mifepristone discovered and when was it approved by the FDA? Mifepristone, so again, this is the uh, progesterone blocking, progestation blocking drug, makes you have your period, has the endometrial lining fall off. Mifepristone, also known as RU486, was discovered in 1980 by French pharmaceutical company. Developed as a medication for treating a variety of hormonal disorders, including Cushing's syndrome, breast cancer, and endometriosis. Researchers were working to develop compounds that could block the effects of progesterone, and they did it. And mifepristone was one of the compounds that they developed. Clinical trials in France in the mid-1980s demonstrated that mifepristone, when used in combination with misoprostol, could safely and effectively terminate early pregnancies. So go French people. You get the award. You discovered this. At that time, researchers were investigating the use of mifepristone for its potential to treat a variety of hormonal disorders. So if you're blocking progesterone, you can imagine if you have other hormone-related conditions, maybe that could help. Remember, mifepristone blocks the progesterone from doing its job and keeping the urine lining thick. During these trials, some participants became pregnant. Obviously, this is before they had the rule that every woman in clinical trials has to be on birth control, which, by the way, is the law um, or, or just the standard of research. Every female in clinical trials is on birth control. So there is no woman who's fertile in clinical trials right now. Wow. Um, anyways, I digress. 
During these trials, some participants became pregnant while taking mifepristone, and it was observed that the medication caused the breakdown of the lining of the uterus, making it difficult for the fertilized egg to implant and grow. Based on these observations, researchers hypothesized that mifepristone could be used to include induce medication or medical abortions and began to conduct clinical trials specifically to test this hypothesis. Misoprostol, uh, which is the contraction drug, was first approved by the FDA in 1988, 1988, okay, for the prevention of gastric ulcers caused by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like aspirin and ibuprofen. Ha ha, I knew it was aspirin. Shouldn't second guess myself. Ladies, stop second guessing yourselves. The use of misoprostol for medication abortion was discovered in the early 1990s when researchers were investigating the use of prostaglidins to terminate pregnancies. Because remember, prostaglidin is one of the receptors on the uterus. So that probably triggered these researchers to be like, well, if this receptor has to be activated to you know, start contractions, maybe for abortions, if we activate it, it would work too. They found that misoprostol could be used to ripen the cervix and stimulate contractions, making it a useful alternative to other methods of induction, such as oxytocin. I didn't know that. I wonder if they still give people oxytocin today. If you know that, drop it in the comments. If you're listening on the podcast, shoot me a DM. <laughs> I want to know. Um, mifepristone was approved by the FDA for the use in combination with misoprostol for medication abortion in September of 20. 20, uh, zero, <laughs> sorry, in the year 2000. I got so used, like, what is it? 20, zero, zero, that's silly. The year 2000, that's when it was approved. Which again is not 10 years ago for all my millennials out there. It's actually uh, 30, no, 20, 20, oh my goodness. I'm 30. This is 20. The following criteria uh, for are for individuals that should not take mifepristone. So I'm also on here to tell you who should not be taking it. Ectopic pregnancies, which is the when the fertilized eggs implants in the fallopian tube instead of the uterus. Problems with the adrenal glands currently being treated with long-term uh, corticosteroid therapy have an allergic reaction to mifepristone, have bleeding disorders or problems, uh, taking anticoagulants, have inherited uh, different blood disorders, or if you have an IUD. I thought that was really interesting. If you have an IUD, do not you can't do this. You should not take mifepristone, says that. Um, what did scientists have to show the FDA to get mifepristone approved? Mifepristone had been available in France since 1988, so 35 years. Thank goodness in my notes, I did the math for myself that time. God bless Brit from earlier this week who did that and was used as a abortion pill in many countries. France actually was the first, but so you, there was also um, abortion via this medication happening in the United Kingdom, Sweden, Finland, China, and Russia before it was approved in the year 2000 in the United States. Scientists had to conduct several uh, clinical trials to demonstrate its safety and effectiveness. These trials involved 2,000 women in the United States and Europe. The trials were designed to evaluate the effectiveness of mifepristone in combination with misoprostol for ending early pregnancies. Women who were, listen to this, this is a crazy thing. I was, I made my apprentice uh, a porva. I was like, girl, go check this. This is crazy. Listen to this. So this is the year 2000, all right, in the United States, or probably like 1998-ish, right? Because they're, they're getting ready for their 2000 approval. Um, they recruit 2000 women 
who were uh, seeking to terminate their pregnancies and who expressed interest in participating in a trial. And they were screened for the eligibility based on criteria such as uh, age, gestational age, and overall health. Literally, can you imagine today the government putting out a call being like, you want an abortion? Let us provide you with one with this experimental drug. Like, this wasn't that long ago, 35 years, but like, um, or, ugh, uh, 20, 23 years ago, or potentially a little bit more, like I said, but like, I could never imagine that happening today. So that's kind of crazy, but they recruited these women who wanted an abortion, 2000 of them. And trials showed that mifepristone in combination with misoprostol was highly effective for ending early pregnancies with a success rating ranging from 92 to 97%. The trials also showed that the medication was safe for most women with few side effects, However, the trials did identify some potential risks associated with the use of mifepristone, including the risk of incomplete abortion and the need for surgical intervention in some cases. So again, both of these drugs together, much, 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 much more effective than one of them by themselves. In addition to the clinical trial data, the scientists had to provide a bunch of other info to the FDA for final approval, data on things like the manufacturing process, stability of the drug, quality of the medication, uh, information on how the medication should be used, monitored, and any potential side effects or complications. Since 2000, the FDA um, has updated its guidelines requirements for the use of mifepristone. So first, in 2016, the FDA revised its protocol for medication abortion to allow the use of mifepristone up to 70 days after the start of the woman's last menstrual period, an increase from the previous limit of 49 days. So just a few years ago, they actually even said you can take this drug up to 70 days pregnant versus just 49 this change was based on new evidence and updated medical guidelines that demonstrate the safety and effectiveness of mifepristone uh, for longer gestational periods. April 2021, so again, not that long ago, the FDA announced that it would allow abortion pills to be mailed in the mail to patients during the duration of the pandemic. So it's not like this drug is just like secretly in the market. It's actually very much in the front of the FDA and they see nothing wrong with this drug. What negative side effects or deaths have been reported, if any, involving mifepristone? Mifepristone has been associated with some negative side effects, although they are generally considered mild and short-lived. Nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, fever, and chills. Um, that's the shortest list of symptoms I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> All of my Hulu commercials are pretty much just symptoms being rattled off for like different <laughs> MS drugs. So the fact that that was it, uh, okay, cool. Um, there have also been a small number of deaths reported in association with the use of mifepristone for medical abortion. However, it is important to note that these deaths are extremely rare and occur at a much lower rate than any other method of abortion. The overall safety profile of mifepristone is considered very favorable, and the drug has been extensively studied and closely monitored since its approval for use in for medical abortions. As of June 30th, 2022, there were 28 reports of death. So what is that? 22 years, 28 reports of death in patients associated with mifepristone since the product was approved in September 2000, including two cases of ectopic pregnancy. So the two of the 28, the, they shouldn't have taken the drug anyways. Um, 
and severe fetal cases of severe systemic infection or sepsis. In other words, there are five deaths associated with mifepristone for every 1 million people in the United States who've taken the drug since its approval. That's five deaths for every 1 million people. According uh, to the FDA data, that's a death rate of 0.0005%. Now, you may be thinking, well, Britt, five might be a lot. Five to a million, maybe. I don't know the ratios. Is that, what is that? Listen to this. Tylenol is responsible for 40, 56, excuse me, 56,000 emergency department visits. 2,600 hospitalizations, and 500 deaths per year in the United States. That's Tylenol, 500 deaths per year. The risk of death by Viagra is 10 times greater than that of mifepristone. Let me say that again. The risk of death by Viagra is 10 times greater than that of mifepristone. The risk of death by penicillin, a common antibiotic, is four times greater than that of mifepristone. Okay. Sounds pretty safe to me. How many people use it? When can they use it? How much does it cost? Mifepristone must be dispensed by or under supervision of a certified prescriber. Okay. Uh, used to end a pregnancy through 10 weeks of gestation, 70 days or less since the first day of the last menstrual period, which is actually about eight weeks. I know we keep saying um, 10 weeks gestation, but did you know that we count the first day of pregnancy as the last day of the period? The last day of the period happens and then the egg is matured and then released. So you actually have about two weeks before you can even get pregnant from the last day of your last period. The reason why we count those two weeks as you being pregnant is because doctors in the old days said they didn't trust that women would know when they were uh, when they got pregnant versus when they knew the last day of their menstrual cycle. And so um, that's just kind of common medical jargon like that two weeks of your pregnancy, you weren't even able to be pregnant, but we're going to call it that because it just makes things easier. That's insane. Anyways. So I always like to put that into context because when we're talking about six week bands, eight week bands, two of those weeks are not even possibly pregnant. Like you literally cannot be pregnant in two of those weeks. So what you're really doing is a four week ban, which is a not, not like missing your period one time with maybe even, I don't know. It's crazy. All right. So I digress. I apologize. So used in half of all abortions in the United States. So mifepristone used in half of all abortions in the United States between 600 and 900,000 a year. That's how many of these are, uh, this drug is being used almost a million a year. Uh, in 1990, we saw 1.6 million abortions per year. So I didn't know that we used to have a, like almost double the number of abortions, but actually I'm not, I shouldn't be surprised. The, the, like war on women's health has like decreased accessibility so much. So I'm not surprised it's decreased by half, but anyways, the cost of the abortion pill can vary depending on the state or health center where you get care and whether you use health insurance, private or government insurance and medication abortion can cost up to about $800, but it's often less. The average cost at Planned Parenthood is $580, still not cheap. An abortion may be free or low cost with health insurance. Some insurances plan, some insurance plans don't cover abortion, and patients can call their insurance provider directly to find out the policy. 
in which also, by the way, I don't, I don't even really like that. Cause you want to make sure like, I don't know, like, do you want to call anyone telling them you want an abortion? I guess, I don't know, but that's what the suggestion is. So in 2020, about 80% of abortion providers accepted insurance. That is actually down from 89% in 2017. So in 2017, 89%, almost 90% of abortion cl- providers accepted insurance, and that, that dropped by about 10% to 80%. Medicare is insurance for people 65 and older and does not cover abortions unless the pregnancy is a result of an act of rape or incest. Uh, but you actually still need a physician's note saying that they believe on good faith that this patient is telling the truth that it was incest or rape, which is like super messed up. Um, this one, I'm not as concerned because again, Medicare is for people 65 and older. If you're still ovulating at 65, girl, please get in clinical, like go to research because you're, you've broken the test of time. Medicaid though, Medicaid, this is really important. Medicaid covers half of all, uh, pregnancies in the United States. So let's learn about that. Medicaid, a public health program, largely for low income households that is administered by the states is financed by federal and state money. Even before the Dobbs decision, so that's when the overturning of Roe v. Wade happened last summer, federal law, known as the Hyde Amendment, did not allow federal funds to pay for abortions, except in limited circumstances, such as the the pregnancy was a result of rape or incest, and again, you still need the doctor's note, or causing a life-endangering condition for the woman. States could choose to use their own money to pay for abortions beyond those situations. 16 states had such policies last year. The health insurance marketplace, so Obamacare, created under the Affordable Care Act, has similar restrictions. Plans offered within the marketplace are not required to cover abortion, and federal money cannot be used to pay for them. Here, too, there are exceptions for rape, incest, and life endangerment, but they are not universal. Before the Dobbs decision, 11 states restricted the type of abortion coverage private health insurance plans could cover, and 26 states barred all plans in their state's health insurance exchange from covering abortion. In contrast, insurers in seven states are required to include abortion coverage in all the plans sold in the marketplace, but no federal dollars are used. Oh my goodness gracious. Uh, all The reason I'm kind of rattling this off is to show you how complicated this is. And when you have six weeks to get an abortion and two of those weeks are faux pregnancy, you can't even get pregnant. So now you're down to four and you miss your period on that last week, you could potentially have 48 hours to figure all this out, right? Or come up with $800. So that's why it's like, oh my God, Britt, you're talking too much, so much jargon. But like, that's actually the point. And they know that's the point. Um, they want us to be confused. If an individual in the marketplace uh, plan lives in a state where abortion is banned, it's likely their policy won't provide coverage in their own state or across state lines. Today, there are 26 states. So even if you like uh, do do what I said earlier, where it was like the girl who works in Illinois um, could get call, get a telehealth appointment. Here, it might not be covered by her insurance because her home base is in a state that doesn't allow it. Uh, today, there are 26 states that ban marketplace plan coverage of abortions. Few states don't make exceptions for rape or incest, and some states make no exceptions at all. The two companies, there's two companies that produce it. What else do I want to tell you guys before I tune, sign off? Um, 
All right. Last thing I want to talk about is just like what's going on right now with the uh, the the court case. So we're diving into this. The reason you're hearing about mifepristone all the time. Let's dive into that. In November of 2022, so only a few months ago, not that long, um, Alliance Defending Freedom, they go by ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative legal advocacy group, challenged the FDA's 2000 approval of the drug. The suit alleges that the agency did not adequately evaluate mifepristone safety before it was green-lighted and went to the market and argues that the FDA should not have had made that medication accessible via telehealth. The Alliance Defending Freedom Senior Counsel Eric Baptist said that said blocking FDA's approval of mifepristone for abortion would not affect other uses of the drug, such as, because remember, people actually use it for other hormone-regulating conditions, um, such as there's a drug for Cushing syndrome that actually uses mifepristone. And this is what the quote is. He says, pregnancy is not an illness, but that's what the FDA had characterized it in order to approve this drug in the first place. This lawsuit will not jeopardize the approvals of other drugs because this was not this was out of balance with FDA. So what he's saying is that um, the FDA approved a drug for something that was not is not considered an illness, i.e., pregnancy. I'm sure it might be debatable whether or not pregnancy. I mean, it's a certainly condition. I don't know if it's an illness, but your risk of dying in pregnancy is so much more in childbirth or postpartum is so much higher than taking this drug of mifepristone. So like, yeah. Um, I mean, based on those statistics, there's like 1100 women who die from uh, pregnancy or childbirth or postpartum in America the, or the United States every year. And based on these statistics of one per or five per million, and there's about, half of abortions are using this. So that's like, there was a million abortions in 2020. So 500,000 abortions, like 0.5 or one person a year is dying from mifepristone versus 1100 pregnancy. So debatable whether or not pregnancy is an illness. The ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, filed its complaint in federal court in Amarillo. If y'all been to Texas, you'll know Amarillo ain't nothing it's not that it ain't nothing i'm sorry for anyone who's there but it's like this little town it's not like chicago where the only district judge so they have one district judge and it's his name is matthew kasmerick he was appointed by mr trump and he's written critically on the constitutional right to same-sex marriage and um anything that has to do with health protections for the lgbt community i.e he's jerk um and not a good person and so these this um guy eric baptist and the alliance defending freedom purposely waited until this guy was in charge of the court in a system where if they filed it he would have to be the judge that all strategic this this is all strategic okay um they know what they're doing is messed up and so they have to play these games U.S. Uh, District Judge Matthew Kazmarek agreed with the Alliance Defending Freedom and in a 67-page ruling on April 7, 2023, wrote that the FDA exceeded its authority, quote-unquote, in approving mifepristone, saying the agency used an accelerated approval process meant for drugs intended to treat life-threatening diseases and because the drug does not provide meaningful therapeutic benefits for patients. 
All right, let's break that down for a quick second. Again, it's uh, this process of approval for FDA is intended to treat life-threatening diseases. Again, like pregnancy is life-threatening. So whether or not it's a disease, debatable. And because the drug does not provide a meaningful therapeutic benefit. If you have a miscarriage and it's only half done, you're going to die of sepsis, okay? Uh, There are so many reasons why a woman cannot go through a pregnancy that could potentially be because of her health and her life. So that's just wrong. It's just wrong. The judge literally said, quote, the error in FDA's judgment is born out of a myriad stories and studies brought to the court's attention. Uh, A preliminary injunction would serve the public interest. uh, What else did he say? The injunction will take effect in seven days. Da, da, da. Um, sales and distribution of the drug would halt under this induction. Mm-mm-mm. All right. So what's next? So what, where we're at right now is that, um, this, this judge in Amarillo, Texas said the FDA tried to approve mifepristone through this accelerated process. I read up on it, this quote unquote accelerated process. They did not go through that process for the drug itself. They went through that for um uh for prescribing to uh, uh minors it's this crazy thing so it, they actually did the full clinical trial full course four years so they've originally filed in like 1996 it wasn't approved till 2000 they actually went through the full process they were not expedited the expedited part is from this one little um program where the heck is it I had it open where um Hmm. Meh, that's okay. I'll find it later, y'all. But there was a accelerated process for how you actually get distributing the drug. And so they needed and wanted to have it regulated under that subpar B or whatever it was um, under this accelerated process because of who they wanted to restrict being having access to it. And so the actual clinical trials of mifepristone with in combination with misoprostol was not expedited. It was four years of clinical trials. So that is not the case. That is, um, that's just not, it's all lies, uh, essentially. And what happened was that that judge issued that order that FDA did this wrong. Somehow this judge knew better than doctors and scientists, um, in like 23 years of facts. And, uh, at the same time, a judge in Washington state ruled that women have the right to this and that you cannot take it off the market And so with these conflicting decisions, that's why it got kicked up to the Supreme Court. Somehow, somehow, some way, they actually said, no, we're going to keep mifepristone on the market. Thank God. So we have a um, uh, seven-person court with a majority conservative. Uh, So it was five to two. Five were an approval of keeping mifepristone on the market and two dissented. So they mean they disagree. They want to take it off the market. And um, uh, now the decision got kicked back down to lower courts. But what we are anticipating is that it will go back to the Supreme Court. And so at that time, I'd like to dive deeper into the legal aspect of this. I know I gave you kind of a briefer overview, but today I wanted us to learn about um, how the bio- biological mechanisms of mesoprostol and mifepristone, because I want you to go out into the world, celebrate yourself, know that you know what the hell you're talking about, and stand strong, your own two feet, and stand up for women's health. And now you have the knowledge to do so, and send them this video if you want.
This has been a really cool new format of episode where I'm deep diving on a specific topic. Please, I'd like to do this once a month. So tell me what topics you'd like me to cover. Um, you know, add me on Instagram where I will be streaming it live. You can follow either Femtech Focus or at Dr. Brittany Barreto, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and uh, at drop some questions. We'll have some monthly live interviews. Well, thanks for uh, listening to the episode. And remember... Keep improving women's health because when you improve women's health, you improve everyone's health.